There we go. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of The Tonic 7, a podcast where a ragtag band of misfit brothers gather to tackle subjects of mutual interest in this, our burning world. Joining us today, we have uh, Army Major Grant Smith, uh, Martian Warlord John Carter, the Reverend L.P. Cock, Guardsman Danny D., and me, Mark Bazone, who is distinctly lacking in any honorifics whatsoever. You left out Doc for your Bailey. I left out who? Doc. I mean, if he shows up, I'll, I'll, I'll show No, man. You left Harrison. out Dr. Evil. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. And Dr. Eric Hammer, who may or may not uh, join us at some point uh, during this discussion. Uh, today, we <laughs> forgot discussing... Harrison, man. <laughs> Harrison. <laughs> Harrison, what's your title? Oh, my God. <laughs> Harrison Doctor Evil, man. That's who I meant. Doctor Doctor Evil, Harrison Coley. Oh, this is going. This is going terrifically. Um, <laughs> in any case, uh, speaking of burning worlds and terrible outcomes, we'll be discussing a phenomenon that's becoming uh, more readily apparent by the hour. Uh, whether it's giant corporate retailers uh, selling openly sat satanic merch or the U.S. military pushing drag and trans, uh, baseball teams pinning medals on anti-Christian hate groups, uh, or the mass sexualization of children, or, or just the creeping omnipresence of in-your-face evil everywhere we look. Uh, it seems to be the case that we are all being forced to make a choice. Uh, for the sake of this conversation and to accommodate our group's spectrum of metaphysical and religious beliefs, we will, we will be referring to this choice as one between the forces of the Tao, meaning those of us who subscribe to a moral truth that is both objective and knowable, versus the forces of the machine, which refers to a purely mechanistic and utilitarian understanding of human beings as soulless objects, which can be endlessly reconfigured and redefined to serve the appetites of a, a ruling elite. Um, I think something we probably all agree on is that the middle ground between these two sides is collapsing. Some of us have called it the divergence of dueling singularities, uh, where the gap between them has gotten so wide that even the Buddha himself couldn't straddle it. Uh, and the escape velocity required to switch sides is becoming something like infinite. Um, in any case, it does seem like the time to make a final choice is coming soon if it has not already arrived? Will we choose wisely? And if so, what might we, we need to risk or sacrifice in order for Tao to prevail over the machine? I think the answer to that is it can't be nothing. And that it might even be something like everything for many of us. Um, but before we get going on it, um, maybe we should discuss the framing issue and whether or not anybody has any objections or clarifications they'd like to add. Obviously, I have my own spin on this and I assume all of you do as well. So maybe we could open up the floor and somebody could um, start by either reframing the issue or, or adding their spin. So at the risk I'll, of I'll being just... incredibly... Go ahead. Okay. Um, the risk of being like kind of repetitive because I always bang on about Miguel Christ. Um, you know, when I, when I was reading that article, the Tao versus the machine, 
that we're using as the basis for this, I it struck me as once again being incredibly consistent with Ian McGillchrist's conception of the difference between the right and the left hemispheres. Uh, and the very different ways in which the two hemispheres perceive the world. So that, you know, mechanistic utilitarian view of reality is kind of how the left hemisphere naturally interacts with things. Uh, and the more organic, open, uh, detailed and complete sort of um, apprehension of reality is much more the right hemisphere. So to a certain degree, like, this it simplifies things in the sense that at an individual level it's really just a switch in perceptions like a little like neurological click that you do and you can move over into that right hemisphere way of looking at things and you're no longer as controlled personally by the machine then insofar as that is the case you could well imagine that this could happen perhaps very rapidly across a large part of the population, um, which could be sufficient actually to roll a lot of this madness back. Uh, what do it take to do that? This is the real question. Uh, and the people who are like really locked into that left hemisphere, uh, you know, dead mechanism way of looking at things, which really I agree is what underlies all of this madness, um, waking them up from that getting them to use their entire brain uh, could be very difficult. So that's, that's kind of how I would frame this question um, from a neurological perspective. Yeah. I, I want to say something. I want to say something in response to that, but first just to, to give more credit to the article that we all read, it's by John Daniel Davidson at the Federalist. And the title is corporate America has launched a religious war. It's time to choose your side. And in it, the the way the the source he gets the the Dow and the machine from is well, I'm not sure. He, no, well, he gets the Dow from C.S. Lewis in the Abolition of Man. Uh, Lewis wrote the Dow, which others may call natural law or traditional morality or the first principles of practical reason or the first platitudes, is not among a series of possible systems of value. It is the sole source of all value judgments. If it is rejected all value is rejected. If any value is retained, it is retained. And then the, the, the machine he borrows from an article by Paul Kingsnorth. But um, yeah, I, I read through the article and that that didn't immediately come to mind. I mustn't have had McGillchrist on my on my mind as I usually do, John. But, <laughs> but <clears throat> on that, it that made me that reminded you you mentioning that reminded me of the you know, the famous Solzhenitsyn quote about the the line between good and evil crossing the you know the heart of every person um dividing the heart of every person so with but it's well maybe it's within the brain um within the head but you could argue that the heart is connected um and that so so like you said that that there's the possibility of a switch so there's the possibility of um kind of like this crystallization right you know you know you, you saturate a saturate water with a certain like salt and then when it reaches a saturation point it'll crystallize so you can have this kind of rapid change or like a you know a, a shift of quantum valence or something like an, ele an electron shell or something you can have this this seemingly instantaneous shift 
Um, so there's, it's not that there's no hope, but things are pretty bad in the sense that people seem to have, as Miguel Christ argues, have progressively over a period of time become more and more locked into this left brain mentality. And it seems to have been a very, um, you know, a very gradual process that's seemingly inexorable. And add into that his, his, his research on, or the things that he summarizes about brain damage, right? So you have a brain damage to the right hemisphere and that will kind of like amp up the left hemisphere. So I'd, I'd even wonder how many, how many more or less permanent changes have been done to a segment of the population to kind of lock them into this mode. And, um, um, basically just, I want to, I want to bring, bring down a bit of that hope to, uh, just, just to make it all the more stronger. <laughs> I wonder, uh, I wonder how much MRNA might've had to do with that. Um, scary things to think about. Uh, I mean, one of the big advantages of Miguel Christ's work, I think is that, um, he offers a way out while starting from and to a large degree remaining within the scientific worldview. So, you know, when we go talking about the Tao and Satan and demonic, obse- demonic uh, obsession and such, um, huge parts of the population and certainly almost everyone inside officialdom will just kind of roll their eyes and be like, oh, a bunch of woo-woo bullshit, you know, um, that's not reality. Uh, well, sure, from the left hemisphere's point of view, that's definitely not reality. That's exactly what the left hemisphere would say. So, you know, that worldview is exactly what, um, exactly how you would expect the left hemisphere to respond. It is every bit as neurologically determined as uh, the right hemisphere's view. And Can I just interject for a second, John, before you go on, because I was, I, I'm not one, as familiar one, one with quick, Miguel Christ's work. One, 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 I, one, one, one quick point, one quick okay, point, um, which is, and I'm just, actually just going to finish, which is that uh, that inexorable sort of slide into a left hemisphere dominated worldview that's happened over the last few centuries, which Miguel Christ also points out seems to have happened to the Greeks and to the Romans. Um towards the ends of their respective civilizations uh, was something that happened in the absence of this neurological understanding. So the fact that we now have this may provide us with uh, a crucial advantage in interrupting that process. Go ahead, Mark. Yeah. So uh, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to get caught up on Miguel Christ, but I, again, I think part of my resistance to it is, is almost exactly related to what you just said. This notion that somehow we have unlocked some kind of deterministic system of mind um, that is linked specifically or, or even emerges from the flesh of the brain, which is in my mind, an organ like any other organ. Um, uh, uh, this notion that somehow um, uh, it's it's a chicken or egg problem, right? It's it's kind of like okay, so if someone um, gravitates towards, let's say, the side of the machine or to mechanistic a mechanistic view of reality, um, if that dynamic system, which is a person, gravitates towards that, uh, what we could be seeing very well is not the emanation of a mechanistic worldview uh, from the flesh of the brain, 
but rather um, something along the order of um, fingerprints or the after effect. In other words, we don't know the cause and effect here. We, I think we, 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 risk, we, we risk kind of crossing over to that side of things if we, if, we assume, if we assume that somehow it is located in the brain. And therefore, so, it's located so, in the so, brain. Okay. It, could be fixed, it could be fixed in the brain. Go ahead. So, Mark, Mark yeah, I have to, I have to defend uh, the good doctor's honor here. Um, he actually believes consciousness is primary to matter uh, and, and argues that to great extent uh, in the second volume of his book. Um, so he, he does not adopt a, a mechanistic, neurologically deterministic view of the brain at all. Um so he's not saying that the right hemisphere generates a more holistic view of reality. It's more that that is the part of our physiology through which we access reality, which sort of is as it is. And then that direct experience of reality that we have when we're in that particular mode of uh, consciousness, which... Um, is the mode of consciousness associated with experiencing reality uh, is basically that is reality. That is as close to reality as we can get. Yeah. Um, so really it's separating the part of the brain or, or our ability to perceive reality as it is versus our ability to model it. And, and so use, everybody's, use exactly. yeah, everybody's stuck in the mode of trying to model it. And models right. are never going to map perfectly to reality but the way that we perceive it can't ever give us granular detail and it's like we can sense it but we can't get that level of detail and yeah, yeah sorry go ahead so in other words it would be the, the closer model might be something like the eye apprehending um a no, spectrum he, of light he actually yeah. he actually goes further even uh, he says basically i think he has the analogy that the brain is something like a rock in a river, right? And the the yeah. river is basically like the cosmos, you know, like and the, the cosmic like force or even talks like in religious terms at the end uh, about it, right? And so, um, and he kind of used the analogy to say that, okay, just like with the, the, the rock in the river creates turbulences, right? So that's in a sense like... Um, uh, the reality we perceive, you know, but at the end of the day, it it is all the origin is like higher. So he really, I mean, he uh, he tries to to get the materialists on board, right? But but he really is like totally not non materialist, uh, and uh, I mean, he attacks Darwinism and uh, I mean all all of the materialist stuff and and goes full religion. In, in the last chapter, basically, to the point that he's, he said uh, people have advised him not to include that chapter, right? I mean, he doesn't go like a certain Christian denomination, but it's like a full like religious worldview, basically. Um, yeah, yeah he, and he, he's very cautious about it in the sense that he sort of lays a very thorough neurological groundwork for how you can um, access this even from the scientific worldview and then kind of builds up to this more religious uh spiritual apprehension of the nature of reality rather than starting with that and then working his way back and that's kind of a tactical choice that he made because you know he's concerned with um changing a few minds 
amongst those who are quite thoroughly locked into the the reductionist materialist paradigm. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting, actually, and 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 thank you for correcting me on it. Again, I've I've only begun. Um, but no, I can like totally I can actually, totally see how you would have that idea because, like, you know, you, normally when people are like, "Oh yeah, it's all neurology," you're like, "Oh, here we go," like, you know, it's all just in your in your head, right? It's like, no, no, that's he's, well, what's he's interesting so about the, the yeah, what's interesting about the way that both of you explained it is is it kind of reflects what I've been trying to do, I think, whether yep. consciously or semi-unconsciously trying to build a bridge to and again i know that i know that i'm not when i say the word atheist obviously there's a whole different variety of people that that covers but for me in particular i i was thinking more about atheists who um are open-minded and who can still be reached in whatever that disintegrating middle ground is because it is it is disintegrating i do think that that the um the choice is becoming um, more uh, an imperative uh, lately, in the sense the fence, that like an sense is falling yeah. apart. Yeah, it's it's yeah. yeah. Um, people who want to like sit on the fence, it's like it's just not getting. It's not so comfortable for them anymore. Um, you really, yeah, you're right. You really do have to make a choice now. But one of the one of the things in that article that we were reading, um, that kind of stuck out to me, that I think we should maybe talk about a bit is. So on the one hand, uh, you know, he points to the woke uh, unholy war on reality, the transhumanists and the transgenders and all of that. Um, And on the other, you've got sort of the more classically religiously minded people. He specifically mentions uh, Christians and Jews. Um, But of course, there are other groups, you know, uh, I I suppose Taoists are kind of implied in the title. but that first group seems to be much more unified around a kind of common ideology, whereas the second group is so much more disparate, which then opens the question of what is the common basis on which um, the opposition to this mechanization of the world, this destruction of reality, uh, can be organized across, you know, Christians, Muslims, Jews, pagans of various kinds, uh, different kinds of atheists, and so on. I think that's almost a political question, you know, because you're trying to build a large coalition, um, and and really, it, it's a spiritual war, but it's also a political war because you know one side's going to try and use force in order to achieve their ends, and. Um, I think the one unifying principle is, you know, kind of what brought us all together is searching for truth and trying to understand reality as it is, as opposed to um, allowing yourself to uh, moralize your own self-interest. And so something, you know, an article that Kryptos just wrote, um, I think really highlights the hardest thing about this and it's humility. That's the most difficult thing in, in the way that he describes humility, which is the way that I use it. And I think it's accurate and the most useful way to conceive of it is seeing yourself as you are. So it's easier to understand other aspects of nature as they are than it is yourself because the ego, you know, it's just very, very difficult. And 
because in the current environment, um, it's just so much easier to serve your self-interest in a lot of circumstances, especially if you have a normal type personality, uh, to moralize uh, your self-interest in a way that's self-deceptive. And so I, I think that that's the, that's the one thing that can kind of unify uh, the Tao, the side of the Tao is a commitment of trying to achieve true humility, trying to see yourself as you are. And, you know, that, that's what's getting in the way. So like, that's what makes it so easy for uh, egalitarianism, right? Where, you know, we just, we, we can get programmed to feel bad for seeing ourselves as we are if we're good at certain things um it causes people to beat up on themselves but also it's being weaponized in, like what is what is pride other than trying to encourage people to abandon humility and uh feel good about themselves not for any particular virtue that they have or their ability to serve anybody else but just because of their predilections and what their preferences are um, so I think that the, the fault lines are very closely along those lines in trying to understand yourself as you are and trying to have true humility. Um, and then everything else is just making that like the, the side of the machine tries to does everything it can to make that difficult, if not impossible for people. And, you know, your obligation on the other side is to try and make it easier and facilitate that. But egalitarianism is the big knot at the center of it because it's so tied in with, you know, human psychology and like meet egalitarianism from an evolutionary psychology perspective. Um, you know, we, we don't want to feel like we're better than anybody else, especially like it's a female thing. So then you got the long house uh, on top of that. Um, and just not understanding kind of the basic truth that in nature, people are different. And there, there are hierarchies that result uh, in nature, you know. And if you deny that those hierarchies are a part of nature and say, no, everybody's equal, everybody's got the same talents and gifts, uh, everybody's got the same opportunities. Um, and if they don't, then we can make it that way it's that's that's an assault against nature on on some mm -hmm. fundamental level that has become pervasive uh to and, the point and, and it's yeah. sorry sorry go ahead. no no i was going to say just to interject to say that that's also a lie that they engage in a delusion we could call it a shared delusion because the you know just like the dividing line between right and left is very fine so is it between self and other um, and so is it between self-interest and interest in others. And so I think that by participating in this lie, this, you know, because again, at some point, you know, some pigs will be more equal than others. Um, by participating in it, I think we see the outlines of the opposite of what you're saying. So if we, ours is the church of the, the humble, let's say, or at least the, maybe humble is the wrong word. Humility is a better word. But we could say that the other, the, the opposite is, um, the church of the lie. Um, in other words, that I think even most atheists, when they look at religion, they say like, okay, maybe these people are delusional, but they, but many of them are at least 
deluding themselves into thinking that they're searching for the truth. Whereas the kind of atomization that we see in the church of the machine by necessity says there is no truth except the one that you make yourself, which is not, which is basically a nonsensical statement. There is no such thing as a truth. Speak, that's speak your truth, Mark. Speak your truth. Well, yeah, exactly. My truth. Right. So it's sort of like, so you go through these motions with these people where they, 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 they can lie, they can be hypocrites as much as they want, because it's all about what is advantageous in the moment. There is no principle that they can't drop or run away from in a moment, because ultimately they, they do not believe in objective truth, whether it's discoverable or not. They're just saying it doesn't exist. Um, and I think that that's really difficult for certain kinds of atheists to understand that that itself can be a religious expression. That just as the seeking of an objective and, and knowable truth is, an, is a religious expression, so can be the complete opposite. So can, be, so can it be a religious expression to say there is no truth, there is only power, yeah. um, and, and your power to, to pursue, again, this, non, this nonsensical concept of an individual truth, which does not exist. Yeah. Um, and, but, so, and so, in, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Luke. Oh, yeah. I know. I just wanted to uh, uh, riff a little bit because I, I really like what you and Grant just said, you know, because the original question was like, where, where are the dividing lines, right? And uh, or where's the fault line between the two camps, let's say. Um, and uh, you actually gave a very broad, like, um, broad definition, if you will, that is about truth, um, mostly, right? Like the um, access to to truth um and uh, i i kind of like that um because uh, there there is us you know if we talk about definitions we are like in in left hemisphere territory again and and there is this danger um even as you form like a camp right or a political uh program or movement that you um that you go too uh, strict with definitions uh, because they can be very useful right and then you say okay um you you believe this and that you know you are not in our camp and vice versa and um you could see like a, a hint of it i think in the article um that we all read uh, but, but it, it was a great article so i don't want to like uh, poo poo um the article at all uh, but you know there there's just this um certain danger if you if you say um you got to you got to take a stand right so that that kind of comes close to you're you're either with us or you're against us, right? That that type of thinking, and uh, and it is there's a certain truth in that, but um, it's also very dangerous in a sense that if you look at history, uh, we we see how you know how many like revolutions and well-intentioned uh, political movements got like subverted and sidetracked just in a heartbeat, right? And and turned into something evil, you know, even if there's good people in it and with good ideas uh so i i really like first of all that we have this left hemisphere knowledge you know as you said john maybe it can prevent us from going like stupid all over again uh and also um uh what it means for our definitions and uh and i think the access to to truth or the the commitment to truth uh, is a really good one and and we could also you know even make the argument that there's a right uh hemisphere um, kind of truth access going on where we maybe don't even need like uh, definitions all that much, right? Um, 
John, you you raise your your hand. You would... I just want to riff on what you're saying because uh, this is this is I think cutting you and Mark are really cut. You're cutting to the heart of it here, um, which is this question of truth and access to it. So it's like you have one side that says there is no truth, and we know what it is, and you have the other side that says objective truth exists, and we don't know what it is. Right. So it's. In order to seek truth, you honestly, you need to maintain this humility of at any given time, I don't know what the truth is necessarily, right? Like I'm open to uh, changing my mind about things and new information coming in, um, different perspectives and so on. And then the other side sort of closing off and saying, saying, nope, we've got it. We know what the truth is. But underneath that is this kind of nihilism, uh, at least in the modern, postmodern sense right? Where they deny the existence of truth itself. Um, metaphysically, I think that 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 really kind of is the conflict there. Uh, this kind of arrogance or hubris on the one hand versus um, the humility on the other. I think there's something, we, we're missing the people in between. So I think the people in between and the reason that everybody's got to pick a side, um, which is you know, kind of what the article is about is that the middle ground is people that believe in truth, but they believe that I think can be dangerous sometimes, or sometimes that you can't acknowledge certain truths, uh, that, like a kind of utilitarian consequentialism with respect to the truth. And I think that's absolutely pervasive in academia. And, you know, I, I have a, fr a friend of mine actually wrote like a Substack note recently um, be because of uh, I, maybe it's just the zeitgeist right now, but he's seen a lot of talk about IQ and race. And so it was like, you know, crazy people talking about that, like, stay away from me. You know, like, I don't, I don't want to talk about that. You guys are all crazy idiots for even talking about that. Um, but that's, that's kind of one of those uh, lever issues where if you don't talk about it, then the people that don't believe in truth are going to uh, use it in order to moralize their own self-interest and say, well, hey, the reason that there's differences in society is because of systemic racism. And, you know, we've just ensured that you have no other argument. There's no other possible explanation. The only explanation for disparate outcomes is systemic racism. And so that, and then also the, the stuff with pride, it's, it's become this wedge where it's like, you, you have to pick a side where you, you can no longer say, Hey, you know, certain things we can't talk about because every single issue like that, where it suddenly becomes, you're not allowed to talk about it. And then normal people see, you know, obvious consequences of, of differences, um, you know, just the differences between people. It goes back to the, the you know, natural hierarchies and, and variability between uh, people, you know, between men and women, you know, we're sexually dimorphic species. That's like, was the big thing, you know, months ago. And, and it's still an issue uh, that, that people talk about, but to deny that uh, there are differences, you're making a truth statement. And a lot of people are like, well, I'm just not going to touch that. 
and there's certain things that we're not going to touch. And that puts them down the path of being aligned with the machine because it's going to allow them to be uh, manipulated. It's that's kind of what the all or nothing thing is, is uh, trying to understand truth as it is, even if it's socially or politically uncomfortable. Um, you know, you, you just try and understand as it is and accept the consequences and just say, hey, it's always better to know what the truth is than uh, obfuscate it. Um, Mark. Yeah, wow. Okay, so um, well, there was a lot there. Um, I'm trying to go in order, um, but I guess I got to start with um, this discussion of um, truth uh, as opposed to a set of facts. And I think that we need to distinguish between the two, because when we talk about that faltering middle ground, when we talk about the idea that people are being asked to choose, they are being asked to choose a side. And that one side, I, I will say this, at least one side um, is now openly proclaiming what it is that they believe. In other words, my biggest problem with the bad cat in that article was that, you know, this sort of incredulity, this idea that like, you know, I don't know if you remember Lada Volkova, the stylist from Balenciaga. Oh, sorry, sorry, Mark, 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 could you, could you tell the viewers uh, which bad cat article? This was the one in which he essentially was saying, um, he was, he was, he was sort of, uh, I can't really recall the name of the article offhand, but what he was essentially saying was that the movement was discredited, discrediting itself. And by the movement, I think he meant some sort of, um, or he did mean some kind of amalgamation of what Grant would refer to as the truth seekers, right? And in this, in this specific context, it had to do with biomedicine. It had to do with the vax mandates. It had to do with everything that we've been dealing with on a material level for the past three years. And so into that, he lumped in a, um, essentially at the time, the Temple of Satan, which is a real religious organization, which has tax, tax exempt status. It has PI, PR arms. It has lobbying agents, the works. It's, it's a real thing. And so he had, caught, he had caught wind of one of their flyers that was essentially um, advertising their after-school program for kids. Um, and so he approached it and he said, this does, not, this does us no good. Things like this do us no good. He, his essential logic started with, this is probably a hoax, which it was not. And then from there he proceeded, okay, well, maybe it's not a hoax, but even if it isn't, I don't care. And then he proceeded from there to say, and by the way, I agree with the temple of Satan's um, essentially uh, neo-enlightenment approach to uh, human philosophy. So he went from, I don't believe it's true, to maybe it's true, but who cares, to, oh, by the way, I agree with the Satanists, right? And so now we have this a weird situation where, you know, Satanists, by the way, they've been doing this since the 1960s, um, uh, starting with Anton LaVey. Actually, you could say that you could extend that back to, you know, to the Golden Dawn um, and to uh, Crowley. But essentially what he was saying was, okay, maybe they don't, they probably don't exist. They're probably just boogeymen. Okay, maybe they do exist, but who cares? And then to, oh, by the way, I kind of agree with them. 
So here we have the choices, right? We see someone like Elgato Malo, who again, like has much to credit him himself with. He, he is, I think, a fantastic writer. I think that he is a very intelligent man. I believe that he wants to do the right thing. But at the same time, he's in that, he's in that crumbling middle. And he could very easily skirt on over to that other side. And when we begin to talk about um, sets of facts, such as racial differences, uh, my biggest problem with all of that is that to conflate a set of dry facts that again are based on modeling. This is not reality. This is not terrain. These are maps. These are maps. And to say that and to conflate it and say, ah, because the enemy in its current manifestation is saying everybody's equal, everybody's the same, that we run to the opposite. We run to the most um, extreme opposite of what the enemy, what signals the enemy is currently pumping out because the enemy changes its signals all the time because there is no truth for them. There's only what's advantageous in the moment. And I think that we are occupying at least a couple of toes on that dangerous middle ground when we, when we kind of agree, we reify that core principle that somehow a model can equal reality, that somehow um, a set of facts is more important than humility before a truth that we're trying to discover but we, we haven't yet fully understood. Uh, and that's, that's the danger. That's the danger. That is that middle ground. It still exists. And there still are people that are in play. And I fear that if we get caught up in, in situations where we conflate facts with truths, uh, we may find ourselves, weirdly enough, even as all of us here are gathered together, even as we're gathered in trust and brotherhood, we might find ourselves swept to the other side. Because because this the magnetic pole is so strong at this moment. Yeah, I think that's the whole right and left hemisphere. Because you know, right hemisphere will tell you immediately just what you said that like IQ, for example, that's a model, right? And also, it's like, what meaning does that have? Does that have any bearing on the worth of a human being? Obviously not. Uh, it's just one of those, um, just another trait that's variable. Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent that if you focus on facts mattering, um, you know, it, it can easily sweep and, you and models way. and models matter yeah. and models being, yeah, yeah they're, like they're always premises yeah, they're, to reality. They're, they're, they, you know, uh, they're subordinate models are subordinate. Um, and that's how the left hemisphere should be. It should be supporting the right hemisphere and a healthy, and a healthy mind, right? Um, Daniel. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's such a, I mean, all this stuff that, and I'm, I guess we we're talking about truth and how we can't know it. It's kind of a struggle to even get the right framing or, or well, not the right, but I mean, to get a framing that's intelligible to discuss it, you know, and as I'm thinking about it, uh, I mean, one analogy, and I think this is where some of the religious language of that article or the, just that religious framing is useful, not, and I think there's some element of truth to it, but even if you don't, there's, it's a useful symbol of a deeper reality. You know, this idea of, on the one hand, this devil, Satan, whatever, some entity that stands for deception, corruption, perversion, you know, uh, 
and uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, the Christian symbol, let's say Jesus of uh, life, truth, light, you know, this sort of, and so one of the, the symbols used in Christianity of the body of Christ, this, this idea of a, a body, um, you know, I think comparing the body to a virus and a virus being something more akin to what is meant by, you know, a devil or, or, or a, you know, sin or whatever. Um, and also with this towel versus the machine, you know, on the one hand you have a body, which so many things have to go right for a body to exist, to be healthy. You know, there's, I mean, with the, the body's own systems, you know, if one thing gets out of whack, say, you know, the, the you know insulin production for example like i mean it just causes all these cascading failures from there um you know because it, things have to be there's this delicate homo homeostasis that the body's resilient but at the same time it it, it can be easily thrown out of whack uh with you know poison or injury or illness or any number of things and then if the body loses the ability to repair itself then it you know just degenerates right so you know, when we compare that to a virus where a virus has got a much easier job, one is much easier, uh, cheaper to produce, you know, a virus, you know, in terms of the biology of it, than it is to produce a, say, a human body, you know, and so uh, the virus doesn't really have to build or create anything, it just hijacks, perverts, destroys what is already there. And it seems like we're dealing with a whatever is meant under the umbrella of this machine, this, you know, what we refer to when you point to like the radical, you know, trans agenda going after kids, you know, being the most recent egregious example of it, um, you know, the DEIification of the military that's undermining combat readiness, things like that. You, you see, all right, this is something like operating very much like a virus where it's not, Try is not even pretending to try to build anything, you know, good, lasting, virtuous, strong, healthy, you know, like a body. It's just acting purely as a virus, just taking, you know, corrupting institutions and, and things that have been built by others and then weaponizing them against the body itself, you know, destroying civilization from within. Um, and I mean, in that sense, it's like, what is the antidote to that? You know, if you have a virus, how do you treat it? And, you know, I'm thinking about like, well, well what cultivates acebia? You know, I mean, you have traditional societies based on some kind of kinship or some kind of, uh, you know, this idea of, of, of loyalty to the uh, nation as in a ethnic thing or, uh, you know, tribe or the land itself. We don't have that in America, you know, I'm looking at, I'm speaking for myself, you know, moved around as a kid and now I'm living in a place where I didn't grow up and I know some people fairly well, but not lifelong friends in the area where I live now. And, uh, you know, my family is spread out all over friends, you know, that I grew up with are spread out all over, um, you know, so there's not really that the, that kinship to hold things together or it's it's more like at this point when you have a, a nation or a civilization involving so many millions of people you know it seems like you just have some kind of narrative story something that people can identify with in some way and america has provided that in the same way that you know the 
the Torah provided that for Jews with this. I, you know, there was an, an, an American narrative at once upon a time uh, that was problematic because it excluded certain people, uh, you know, justified atrocities against blacks or you know, Native Americans, but it provided some workable story that people could identify with. Hey, this is, you know, America stands for these values and it's, it's, it's come from this origin and it's, it's moving towards this, metaphorical promised land right and that's been lost now the left has done a good job acting like a virus of just corroding that and finding the problems in it and exploiting those you know the, the same way that a virus would exploit a weakness in the body uh, mm. you know but then now the question is how, how do is there a story that we can you know promote that people can cohere around to build a functional civilization because i don't see you know i know some people would say the ethnic nationalism but for america that's i don't see that as a plausible solution and in fact mm -hmm. making people more conscious of their race or ethnicity which the left has been so good at doing is just going to make things worse and further you know looking back at uh at, you know our experiences in military involvement in the Middle East, you know, you see what happens when you have ethnically divided or tribally divided country, you know, when things come apart and that ethnic or tribal violence, that cycle starts, it's hard to put it to put a stop to that and, you know, return to any kind of status quo, you know, because it's just, and so I feel like that's kind of where we're heading as a culture given the, the hacks, the left, when I said that, that in terms of the Marxists, you know, not traditional liberalism, but like the Marxists left, what they've been able to exploit, you know, I, so I, I, I don't want to go down the road of ethnic nationalism, but I don't, you know, we need a story of some sort, and I'm not sure what that story is. So I'm throwing that out there. If any of you guys have ideas about that, what that could be. Well, I don't know if I have a story, but I've, I've got something, and this this ties back to um, what I think was John's question a while ago. So maybe we can wrap up this this section of the show with it. I don't know. Um, at least this is how I, I understood the question: was we've got basically a whole bunch of disparate elements in the. I believe it was in the Dow, but I'm going to take it as being in the Dow. So how do we basically unify and get over all of these differences? And so this kind of relates to what you were saying, Daniel, about the disintegration and the atomization that is a loss of Asabia. And uh, what that made me think of was um, East in, in Eastern Europe um, during communism. So the, this, this was something that I learned about in the book, uh, Live Not by Lies by Rod Dreher. And he's talking about how in these kind of basically resistance, like normal people resistance cells, just everyday citizens and the way that they, the ways in which they would both cope and reestablish connections with themselves was through this uh, kind of, um, well, religious practice in a sense, but it wasn't, it wasn't strictly uh, organizational or, or denominational. So you would have all kinds of different Christians, because it was mostly Christians, um, you know, in Poland, for instance, and they would all get together and 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 be closely knit regardless of whether they shared the same um you know specific version of the faith and so 
the it was the act it was the the experience of suffering together for decades that led them to to have an awareness of the important things and uh and to kind of ignore the 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 less important things the kind of trivialities the the surface appearances and that unified them so the the question would be for me is whether that is something that can only happen as a result of decades and decades of uh you know very harsh experiences or if the like as a form of as lobachevsky called it like natural immunity that is acquired or if there's the the possibility for uh you know uh, an artificial an artificial immunity to to be introject, introjected and that would be something along the lines of what i've talked about on on my stack a couple of times uh chris langan's idea of a meta religion where basically and lobachevsky says a similar thing in, in logocracy basically um, a unifying set of, of principles that kind of um, that most religious people, no matter what their what their religions are, can get behind, and if that can act as a as a unifying factor, and maybe that can take the well, it probably should take the form of a of a story, if a very like broad and general one. But uh, I'll just throw that out there. Well, I think that there's no there's no such thing as a broad and general. Well, I mean, I guess Joseph Campbell would say, oh, "The hero with a thousand faces." That's her story. That's a template for a story. Um, and I think that I agree that like, yeah, you do need stories. And but in another sense, we are stories. And in, the, in an even another sense, we are making a story um, as we speak. Uh, the story is a familiar one. People emerge from a plague. And then they have two options. And then and that one option is to go full on to the mechanical side. To, to put everything that they have, every, to, to, to risk or sacrifice everything that they are for a chance at like some dim view of, of a life that could be maybe lived for another 50, 60, 70 years, right? That's the one choice. And then the other choice is, okay, we're all in, we're gonna have a renaissance. That's what happened after the last giant plague. and And, by the way, I'm not even calling COVID a plague necessarily of the biological kind. Um, certainly, it was a great, at the very least, it was a great spiritual plague. It was a great power play. It was a great psyop. It was all of these things. It was a, it was a plague of, of um, the elites upon the masses. It was definitely a plague of the parasitic divergence, no matter which way you look at it. And so we do need stories, and we are making a story. Um, at the same time, just to just to go back to what I think was the impetus for this conversation is we are making the story of what I guess Rudolf Steiner once called a war of all against all. And he wasn't, you know, he's paraphrasing and he was talking about the mystery of Golgotha, and he was talking about the mystery of sacrifice. He was talking about the idea that a single event could set into motion a whole butterfly's wings uh, that would wind up in the kind of a tough typhoon that we're in right now. And so we have this choice that's before us. And in choosing the side that we've chosen, which I think is again, the human side, uh, the side of, uh, of Tao, I would say the side of God. In choosing the side of God, uh, I think that we have to accept in our humility that we may have to give quite a bit up in order to proceed in that direction. In other words, 
we are outnumbered physically. Um, we are outnumbered in, in the, I guess what you would say is the left brain side of things. The model of things shows catastrophe. It shows that we're, you know, that they're, the, 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 the orcs are outnumbering us 10 to one. And that's fine because what it what that suggests though to us is that like we will have to sacrifice quite a bit in order to turn this back, in order to turn this away. And like, so to return to the idea of something like um, the notion of let's say uh, race realism, right? Of the Steven Saylor uh, variety. Um, it, when we look at something like that, we have to say, okay, is this something that I can sacrifice? Yes, it's true. It's unfair. It's unfair that rules have been rigged and rules have been rigged in a way that is not meritocratic at all. Rules have been rigged in such a way that um, one race is, is punished uh, to the benefit of others. Uh, that's an echo throughout all of human history. That's nothing new, right? It's nothing new. Tri one tribe is 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 benefited at the expense of the other. Uh, our enemy switches those tribes all the time. Once upon a time, it was the reverse of that. It it may become the inverse of that again, uh, but it is not truth. You know, um, as a matter of fact, I'd say anecdote is superior to model. Here's an anecdote. The anecdote that I have that speaks more to truth is that the person that I have known well in my life, who has the highest IQ of anyone else that I've known well in my life that's been recorded is both black and a woman. That's real, okay? I know that that is real. So what do these models mean in the face of that? I and mean, maybe it means I just don't know that many smart people, but that's not true. I know quite a, I quite, I know quite a few high IQ people. This is just a mathematical test. Does that mean that all black women are super geniuses? No, it doesn't mean that. But it points to the idea that if we get caught up in the same gamesmanship as these people, as the same gamesmanship as the enemy, as the machine, uh, eventually what we're going to do is we're, we're just going to end up, you know, reducing, we're going to end up increasing their, materially, their material and numbers advantage even more. And, uh, and, 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 and I think that given that the situation is so critical, I, th I think that's poor strategy, if nothing else. I'll tell you what it means, Mark. It means that the machine cannot tell you who you are, to paraphrase the right. matrix. So right. I, just to send things maybe off in a slightly different direction, because we always get very abstract, right? So, you know, we're talking about truth and and such in this very abstract sense um but there are nuts and bolts issues here as well right like you know why why is this stuff compelling at all at this historical moment and the answer is the widespread human misery and despair which has been john, created so by the system oh we we lost you for a second there john oh uh let's go back a I, sentence I, or two so yeah, there, there's this, this widespread, like, you know, misery and despair through the population, right? So um, young people are having an incredibly hard time finding 
uh, romantic partners, getting married, starting families, affording houses, sort of, you know, very basic stuff like this, right? Um, are they concerned with these high notions of uh, the beautiful and the true and the good and everything? It, a lot of them, maybe to a certain degree, yeah, right? But at the same time, there are these very basic things that they're not getting from the current system. Um, you have other dysfunctions, right? So, you know, setting aside questions of uh, racial IQ differences, you have a situation right now where um, you have this mass migration into every single Western country, uh, which, you know, for Americans, I think you can sort of say, well, you know, we're a country of immigrants. We've always had people coming in. What's the big deal? Um, but if you talk, what about, what about a country like Ireland, which only has a native population of a few million people, or Sweden, which has a native population of 8 million people? Um, and, you know, you go on and on, Lithuania, you know, uh, all these European countries that have these very small populations that can easily get swamped and effectively genocided in just a couple of generations um, if you have this sort of mass influx of people. Um, this is a very basic issue that is facing them. It's a very real thing. It's I don't want to say more fundamental than truth, but it is true that they are facing this, right? Um, and I guess what I'm getting at is that there is the danger when you get too abstract of failing to John, you cut out. Yeah. Hello. Maybe well, can... Go ahead, Luke. Why don't you cut? Well, I'll just say, I, I think, I think, yeah, before John comes back, like I, I, I grasp what he's saying. I'm not saying in any, this in any way to, um, as a policy recommendation or something. Although I will say that what, all of the what? countries that he mentioned, go ahead. Are you back, John? Did I disappear? Oh, yeah, my connection's on. Yeah. 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 Uh, I was wondering, because I was looking, I was seeing, uh, oh. Yeah, I was seeing weird expressions in people's faces. Go ahead. No, no, you were cut. I was cut. I was only jumping in because you cut out. Um, so if you wanted to finish your thought, that's fine. But I'll finish mine very quickly. Is that the countries that you mention, the nations that you mention, I think of, and this, this is just me, but I think of them as fictions. I think of my own country as a fiction at this point. I'm not really sure no, 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 how forget, much of forget, the forget, forget, forget about like, you know, whether the Swedish people is an abstraction or not. The fact is, no, no, no. I'm not, I don't think that the Swedish, I don't think the Swedish people are an attraction or a fiction. I think that the idea that like they're they are governed by Swedes is a fiction, if that makes any sense. But go ahead. That's a thousand percent probably right there. I mean, it just shows that these them us like what you're saying. We're not governed by people that. Well, it's obvious in America, but even Sweden, you know, I don't think the people want. Well, this is this is yeah, this is this is definitely exactly. I mean, like it's it's very unpopular, and a lot of that comes down to the fact that you know it is true that you know we call ourselves democracies, but we are not even close to being democratic. We have these um, sort of international uh, bodies that have taken control of our various countries for their own reasons. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, these are problems that need to be dealt with, right? Like very concrete, very specific problems. People need to be able to afford to start families. They need to be able to afford houses. They need to have some guarantee that their territorial integrities of their various uh, peoples will be respected. Um, and, you know, without that, a lot of, like, a lot of these discussions kind of end up being sort of like, well, what are we talking about? You know, like, if, uh, like, does it matter? Um, if we win an abstract argument, if in a hundred years, there is no Western civilization? I don't think I mean, that's that an abstract be- argument, though, to, to say that, that that the line does cut through the human heart. And that means it cuts through every Swede's heart. It cuts through every German's heart. It cuts through every uh, Ugandan's heart. No, nah, we, we are just heart. evil, Mark. <laughs> no, no, no. I just mean that. Here's what Ugandans I'm saying. Ugandans are you know, all good, except except the Ugandans who are against homosexuality. Those Ugandans, those right, black people. Well, are- yeah, well, exactly, exactly. Well, listen, like just to finish the thought, though, here's the thing. I, you know what? I, you know what I've thought of recently, like when, in the run up to this was um, Stephen King's novel, The Stand. I don't know yeah, if exactly. anyone's read it. OK. And so in The Stand, we have the prophecy of art. I'm not going to preach to you about how arts can, artists can see the future, but they they can. We can see the future. Um, Stephen King saw it very well. Uh, Rudolf Steiner saw it very well. Um, there was a there was a show on TV uh, that was it was a streaming show that was on Amazon quickly and then quickly erased called Utopia that also saw it well. And what it says is that after a time of great um, destruction, when one of these horsemen of the apocalypse charges upon us, right? Whether it's plague or war or famine, it's all it's all four at this point. They've all charged very hard in the last couple of years. And so in the wake of that, it means that I think that, and this is just me, I think that national and even tribal and ethnic considerations are being washed off the board, that we might have to look for each other in every nation, that we might have to, it does not mean, no, that doesn't mean, I, I, it doesn't mean we throw down the walls. It doesn't mean uh, uh, the kind of ridiculous immigration policy that's been pursued. All of that is true. All of that was destructive. But now I wonder, like, in the ruins of that, because I think we're in the ruins of it, unless, unless John, unless you and I could go and, and get a shovel and some, and, some, and some bricks and some mortar and start building walls, uh, it ain't going to happen. We're not, gonna, we're not going to be able to preserve the nation state system. We're not going to be able to preserve even the ethno-tribal system. I agree. Um, and so, and so, so what I'm looking to is what's next. And what's next is we have this fabulous instrument in front of us. I, I know that like, you know, there's a joke that go, runs around us like that I'm some kind of Luddite or that I'm some kind of anti-technology um, guy. Uh, it couldn't be farther from the truth. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've worked in technology quite a bit. And so what I see before me is a tool for which, for uh, for those of us who ride one side of that, ride one side of that line to find each other and to connect um, and to do it in a hurry because the enemy is absolutely um, on the march. Uh, and if we don't get our shit together and we keep, we keep arguing about sort of the corners of this policy or that policy, I, 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 th- I think that it will end badly for us. Yeah. So, I, I, so to build on, 
sorry, I, uh, sorry to, to, to build on like the whole, um, a story, right? A common story, what Harrison was saying about, you know, meta-religion in Langan's terms. And what you were just saying about, okay, what comes next? Because I totally agree, the nation state's falling apart. We can't, we're not going to go back to that. Um, there are other models in history. You know, uh, if you look at medieval Europe, you have this kind of Catholic ecumenicism where you have a sort of unifying framework that enables everyone to kind of trade and get along and such. But you also have that local autonomy. You have that control over your your own people's sort of territory um, that enables all of these diverse cultures to kind of exist, not displace each other, but also get along at the same time. And something like that, some kind of like, you know, cyber medievalism, I think, uh, could be um, could be the resolution here. Uh, just wanted to quickly say that. Uh, sorry to cut you off, Luke. Go ahead. Well, no problem at all. No, I just uh, wanted to come back uh, for a second to the to the left hemisphere, right hemisphere thing because um, I didn't even uh, uh, made the connection uh, to that article. But since you brought it up, I think it it makes a lot of sense um, because there there is, I guess, um, uh, a certain sense that uh, in which you can't really like. You know, um, Mark said we, we shouldn't like argue about like, you know, or uh, get upset about like all these political issues and stuff. And and I think it's it's a good point um, because uh, at some point we just need to, um, I don't know, like turn on our right hemisphere and and have a broader sort of vision and, and, a, and a more fundamental sort of vision where we just, you know, um, get together with people uh, i mean like we are doing here now right with, with from very different backgrounds and all that um that you know share just a very fundamental um direct perception of something that just isn't right right in in this world and it's it's not you know you can say okay some people might say it's because of mass migration other people might say it's more because of um, I don't know, like suffocating um, bureaucracy or uh, other people might even say it's more because of the environment, you know, goes down the drain and be beautiful nature is destroyed. You know, I mean, it's like there's there's many things you can talk about and, and many things you can like get into heated arguments about. But at the end of the day, I think this, this um, direct sort of right hemisphere perception, you know, that sees, okay, something something is not quite right you know i mean there's just something fundamentally off here and it's just it's horrible you know and i don't want it um and uh, and if you can like bring people together who share that 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 fundamental deep sense that that per, yeah perception i mean there are like not even good words for that kind of thing right um then much is much is already won right and um and it might also help you know, like um, not getting too sucked into certain issues and certain controversies, because that's also like a skill I think that um, that we all need to learn. And and people who are like on the fence now and who uh, who are thinking about like joining team team God or team like crazy craziness, like team tonic uh, tonic weirdness. Um, that uh, they have to kind of learn, and we all have to kind of learn um, to uh, look at these issues like 
you know, and it's, it's maybe a sort of sacrifice as well, right? You sacrifice your comfort and you, you train yourself to be able to look into issues that kind of trigger you that, that you feel uncomfortable with. But at the same time, you also sacrifice your, um, your identification with these things, you know, like your, um, the pleasure you get uh, from like arguing and from like forming um, hardcore tribe online tribes you know that like are like all about one issue and you know show it to them and just can't think about anything else so it's also a question of of sacrifice i think and um and only then uh i think uh, it's very useful to um uh think about different uh, like all kinds of political futures or possible futures and and his historical political entities and and all that but maybe you know there, there needs to be like sort of a of a basis um uh yeah so that that would be my take on the on your discussion mostly uh mark and john you know because uh so, between like the abstract level and the concrete and how that might come together right so i i i think of this team human touch almost um so so mark used the example um of the oh shit who did we just lose we just lost Harrison. Okay. Um, yeah. Harrison just disappeared. Um, <clears throat> so you, Mark, you use the example of this, the smartest woman you've ever known uh, as a black woman. Right. So, you know, you're the, the abstract well, race. The, the one, the one, I'm oh, sorry. On, the one finish, with the highest IQ, the one with the highest right, yeah, IQ. Sure. 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 Um, so your, your abstract race realist kind of would say, oh, well, you know, on the average, uh, black people are not as intelligent as white people, dot, 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 dot. Um, but then, you know, that's kind of like your left hemisphere, right? And then like the right hemisphere is like, but this specific actual human being in front of me is highly, is highly intelligent, right? Highly competent, is a very good person. Um, and this, I think, is at the root in many ways of the problems we have in the society because we rely so much on abstract systematizing um in almost any context we're not really being treated like human beings we're being treated like numbers like representatives of some group like uh you know like pieces to be moved around on a board cogs in a machine i mean like you get like all of, all of those metaphors right um and this is exactly why strong central government is immoral. It's because it, is, it encourages right. this exact thing. Um, and, it, and it does so unavoidably because they can't you could, make decisions you could, you without data. And then you could actually make an argument that this is this is a problem with democracy <laughs> for a strong centralized government or something like that. If you have like a more absolutely. personal touch like a monarchy. You know, like the, the king is a very personal thing, right? And he is he has personal fealty to these people below him and so on down the chain. And you maintain this sort of a human connection all the way through. But then when you have these abstract institutions where everyone has to follow certain rules and you're all sort of put into different categories and you have all, all the bureaucracy and, and everything. Um, but yeah, no, Grant, in general, I, I totally agree. This is why like a more distributed form of government where you don't have that central, that strong central state is so preferable because you, then you can have the opportunity for those, those uh, personal connections. Right. Um, and even in other ways, like, you know, if you're like dealing with like a, a your employer, you know, there's a huge difference between um, 
a small family run business where you can have that personal connection with uh, the owner of the business versus being a peon in a huge corporation. Um, so yeah, that was a bit of a ramble, but I just wanted, so yeah. I, I think, yeah, acknowledging that there, you know, there's a nature that people are different. People have different capacities and abilities. That's, that's hard to contend with given the prevailing egalitarian liberalism. You know, it's a different way of looking at things, but it, I think it is true. That is, that is nature, you know, there's differences between people. Um, and if people can acknowledge that and see that, then we can start thinking about how to contend with it. So Mark said something about not focusing so much on policy. I agree with that hundred percent. I think we need to try and understand nature and you know, what's going on around us. And once we understand that, then we can start thinking about how to make it work, how to deal with the fact that, you know, people don't like people that are different from them as much as they tend to like people that are the same, you know, how to deal with things like, you know, there are biases and they've taken these concepts like um, implicit bias or, or, or whatever, and they've just made them stupid and not reflective of reality. But there's there's something there. You know, it's, it's harder to get along with people that disagree with you. And, you know, if we understand all how all these things work, then we can figure out how to get along best and thrive together, you know, in a community, in a in a state, in a nation. Um, but as soon as we start saying certain things are off topic or uh, out of bounds, I think the reason that people make them out of bounds is because they're trying to, to moralize their self-interest in an underhanded way. And I just don't think that that underhanded um, advancing of your own self-interest, I think that in the long run, that's going to lead to poorer outcomes. So I look at things in terms of general principles and pursuing truth and trying to understand things as they are, as opposed to as you'd like them to be. I think that underlying principle is what's going to allow us to kind of come together and, and make the world a better place. But unfortunately, that, that kind of is feel-good talk, right? Because it's easy to say that. It's really hard to do it. It's really hard to try and accept the world and accept nature as it is. Because you're, when you do, you're going to find things that challenge your assumptions. And that's what epistemic humility is all about. That's why you have to have it is because uh, otherwise the temptation is to be like, no, I know what I know, and I'm going to stick with what I'm comfortable believing. Just to jump in real quick, like to extend, because yeah, Grant, thank you for that. Because I think that that's important, um, that distinction. Um, so the woman in question I was talking about, uh, just to extend that anecdote a bit, um, was at a point in her life, and we're talking post-war, post-World War II, where she was heavily courted um, by the CIA. And the reason that I mention that is, is because when we look at things like, okay, so we are engaged in all of these models. Um, we think that these models are maybe developed or devised uh, for our benefit or for the benefit of society at large. So something like an IQ test, it says like, we say like, oh, well, we just want to um, expand 
the volume of intellectual worthiness in society. We want to find those people uh, that could best service it in some some aspect. Uh, and 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 really, I think that what we've seen lately is that it's it's something like the opposite of that. Um, that we what, when we when we see people applying these sort of even if they're generalist models, what they're doing is they're saying like, how can we find um, people to exploit? How can we find the the type of person that will uh, help us engineer uh, something like a global tyranny? Which I think we could all agree, you know, if nothing else, that's what we're seeing. We're 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 literally seeing Dr. Evil trying to take over the world. It's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. It's fascinating to look at the landscape of the past 20 years and probably longer than that, quite frankly. I mean, like, you know, but 20 years, you're talking about almost half my life. And for almost half my life, it's become clear that um, the recruitment mechanisms, the, the, all of the various tests and the hoops that they make us jump through um, are devised for something other than human flourishing, let's say. They're devised rather to benefit a very small group of people. And I would go further than that. I would, I would absolutely go into the realm of the spiritual. I would say that, yeah, there, it looks like, you know, people that are just trying to like get laid and get a lot of scratch, but like, but like ultimately we're looking when we when we look at the left hemisphere, right hemisphere. If we want to put it in that um, in that framework, if we want to if we want to say that it's something like the total apprehension of reality versus the the obsessive need to devise models that can advance advantage um, the owner of the brain in some way. Yeah, let's look at it that way, and then, and then let's say. Let's say, okay, so there's a clearly something that delineates. There, there's, there's a, if that's the, if that's the um, Rubicon that we must cross or bridge, I think is the better version of that. Because I don't want to throw out the left brain. I don't want to throw out the part of me that can, that can model reality because like the part that models reality can serve some good in a limited way. I do believe that the part that is is purely about assembling models and testing them and like getting um, solutions to market is not intrinsically evil. I, I don't I don't separate it that way. I think that what becomes evil is when that part of the mind or the soul dominates the part that apprehends reality as it is. Um, and and also dominates anything like anecdote or memory or dreams, you know, like like once you have a part that just says like, well, model is all, and everything must 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 everything um, that is good and true must flow from this model. That's where I think we get into trouble. And and if we talk about what we need to sacrifice in order to stop that from happening, to some degree, it might mean that we need to sacrifice a whole lot of models. It might mean that we need to sacrifice a bunch of golden calves that are like, you know, kind of um, foundations or structures or lattices of fact that like we, we you know, we, we kind of apprehend as reality. Like we might have to throw out the maps, I guess is what I'm saying. And that's, 
And that's that's particular that's a dangerous thing to do. That 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 will require um, a kind of both moral and intellectual and and physical danger. Like to throw out all the maps and say, okay, I gotta start looking at reality as reality again. I need to like let reality um dominate the model. And uh and I, I don't know if we can do that. Um, I think that some of us are trying and, uh, and you know, and, and I am trying, but I will fail. Uh, you know, I, I, that's the humility. The humility is no, I know tomorrow I'm gonna write an article where I'm gonna, I'm gonna betray that in some way. But like, I think maybe what unites us is the hope that over time we'll, we will explore the terrain more than we do uh, more than bothering with the maps. I think Mark, that just takes a shift in the attitude. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Now go ahead, Grant. I was just going to say that it's that's just a shift in attitude, just recognizing that the models have limited utility. They're just limited. You know, it's not that they're not useful. They can be very useful in limited ways. Uh, and then, you know, with, with the acknowledgement that it's not reality. Um, that it helps you do all kinds of stuff and navigate reality. Uh, go ahead, Dan. Yeah, uh, I know what you were saying and what Mark was saying about uh, it, it kind of getting to a point where your maps of reality don't work, you know, and recognizing you, you know they are useful, but then when you have ones that are just clearly wrong, and so they're telling you that something should be here, and you get there and it's not there you know, or, or leading you to make predictions about reality that turn out to be totally incorrect. And I th think that on a personal level, and a lot of us, I know I've the last few years have been through that process or yeah, it's an ongoing thing, but, you know, I'm sure at some point in all of our lives personally, you know, reached a point of recognizing you have this growing cognitive dissonance and you have to at some point say, okay, this model that I'm using doesn't work. And it's that, in between moment, which is can be terrifying, you know, to discard your map of reality or or what you think reality is, and recognize, okay, I don't know, and I don't know exactly how to begin constructing a new one or what's wrong with the map that I've been using exactly. But I have to kind of have this almost like a you know hyperbolic skepticism, like Descartes, almost you know, to say I don't know what what is going on and that seems like if, if we're trying to do that as a culture that's uh i don't because when you do it on a personal level you you have to for it to work you have to go into it without say okay i'm going to revisit all my assumptions and so you're you're which i don't know if that's even possible to do but you have to try and there's you go into it not knowing for sure that you will land on the other side of having of developing a map of uh, an understanding or model of the lay of the land that's workable you know and uh, especially if you're in a world where you know people are trying to get over on you you know so other people have agendas that they don't care if their overall map of reality is correct or not because they're just trying to make a fast buck off you or you know take away some of your freedom or whatever right uh but then to say as a culture we're going to do this together kind of which it seems like we had kind of have to do recognize okay our map isn't working we need to revisit some core assumptions you know that we're we've all kind of internalized and so are we going to be able to do that not knowing that we'll reach the other side uh, anyway john you got your hand up 
years ago, there was this story about this old dude who was, uh, this was just after GPS um, had hit the consumer market and he was driving down the highway and uh, his GPS was telling him, keep going straight ahead. However, there was construction on the road. Uh, the bridge was out. There was no bridge, in fact, but the GPS map thought there was. And there were signs up all over saying road closed, bridge out, you know, danger, all these things, right? Which he completely ignored because his GPS was telling him, no, this is the way. And he drove off the bridge and ended up in like a pile of sand or something, which I thought was really funny at the time. But it also seems in many ways like something of a a, a metaphor for the situation we're in right now, where you know we have this map of reality that we blindly trust, um, and we've got all these signs around us telling us, you know, danger, warning, stop going in this direction, and uh, we just keep blindly trusting the map. I don't think we need to throw the map out. Um, it's just a matter of uh, to switch metaphors for a second. Stop staring at Google Maps and actually go for a walk in the woods. Um, you know, get out there into reality and actually experience reality. Use the map to get where to help you get where you're going. Um, but don't confuse that for the territory and continuously update the map. So, you know, this these kinds of problems of people driving off the highway because their GPS map is telling them to uh um that there's a road where there isn't, that hasn't happened for some time now. Why? Because Google Maps is just constantly refreshing itself. It is constantly updating that model with new information as it comes in. And that's something that um, we've gotten really bad at inside our own heads, I think, as a society, partly because, for instance, uh, there are all these topics that we're not allowed to ask questions about. All these things that are sort of nailed down, like, nope, it is this, this is the dogma, you must follow that, you can't dissent from it. So you people just lock down that part of their mental model of the world. And increasingly are stumbling around with a terrible model. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, all I had to say on that. Yeah, I, I, oh, I was just going to say, just to, to add to that a tiny bit, um, we don't know the consequences. You know, it might be driving off a bridge, right? We don't know the consequences. And I think that's that we can expect that it, it'll be something like that. You know, it, it, it might seem like you, you can get away with playing utilitarian games with truth but i just know like i think that's that requires a lot of hubris frankly because we don't know like we just we don't know the world's too complex for us to you know in, in shooting call it kentucky windage so instead of like zeroing your optic you you just say oh okay i'm up into the to the right a little bit so instead of zooming my optic i'm just going to go to the range and just shoot down into the left the entire time it's like that doesn't work you know you're you're not going to shoot well uh you have to you have to zero your optic um and you know the idea that we don't have to zero our optics i think it's gonna 
I think it's leading to disaster, but more importantly, I don't think it's an accident. I think that there's people that are uh, weaponizing it that are essentially psychopathic criminals. Um, go ahead, Daniel. I don't know what you said about psychopathic criminals. I think that's the thing is like we've had this, I don't know, it's almost like we've come to the age of, end of this age of the cult of personality, you know, like where these uh, charming figures who are supposed to have the answers and they're persuasive and they're charismatic and they're full of shit, you know, and um, I mean, they, you know, you get the sense that like, uh, you know, but just looking at the, the world as a, and things that have gone wrong, it's like, you know, if you have the experience of, of talking to somebody and, and realize that they're lying to you, like you catch them in a lie and it just totally, from that point, you know, it's like, I find it hard to trust the person, hard to, you know, it kind of calls into question everything that you thought you may be, even if, it, if the lie is not, you know, like imagine a, a, buying a car, you kind of expect the salesman to engage in some kind of, you know, puffery or be a little, you know, manipulative in a, in a way but not outright lie. But if you catch them in a lie, like something that you can obviously verify, then it's like, all right, I'm done. I'm not buying a car from you. And uh, it seems like we've, with the culture that we've, people have been conditioned for the last several decades to just kind of trust the institutions, trust the authorities, trust the whoever, the, 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 the science or whatever. And, you know, the last few years, a lot of people have been awakened from their dogmatic slumbers with, you know, a realization that like, wow, these people are, are lying and they've been lying for a long time and the the rot of dishonesty and all that goes so deep that can we even reform some of these institutions and some of these uh, systems you know and and then in the meantime you got the angry you know marxist left who just you know i don't know seems psychopathic or narcissistic dark triad personality disorder mm-hmm you know, to where they're just trying to tear stuff down to get attention and for themselves, you know, whatever. So it's kind of like in the place where we're at now, um, you know, it, it does seem like there's now this vacuum and nature abhors a vacuum. So it's kind of like, well, what comes next? Um, and I guess what, if we're at that point where we're now, we're realizing that our map mental model our map of the world hasn't worked. We're about to drive off a bridge and now we got to go back and, uh, you know, revisit our, our core assumptions, you know, about things, you know, we're kind of going forward almost blindly, you know, our instruments are not working. And so we're like, all right, we got to figure out how to navigate this thing. Um, you know, and I guess I mean, then it's, it comes back to that question, Mark, I think it had earlier, or maybe put it in the chat about, uh, you know, which, you know, sacred cows or golden calves or whatever, you know, are we willing to let go of to say, okay, we need to revisit all this stuff because what we're doing isn't working. Um, you know, anyway, I guess we're, you know, at that point, and uh, I guess as an American, you know, one of the things is that whole idea of the it's sort of the radical egalitarianism and also an idea that for myself personally, that I should have a voice in, in it and, and that I'm qualified to offer opinions about, you know, how things should be run 
maybe I don't know. And I, you know, I don't know what, what comes next, but uh, anyway, throw it out. I'm, I'm pretty much done. So anybody else that has anything to say to wrap up with, go for it. All right. I'll pipe in for a second. Cause I feel like this conversation was absent woo and there's some necessary woo here. Um, and the woo comes in the form of this is that we have now a situation where people are proclaiming um, sides in what is essentially a spiritual conflict. Um, they're just doing it. Like, you know, what, now whether or not they're doing it is, is some kind of ironic uh, postmodern pose or something uh, doesn't really matter to me. What matters to me is that um, I do think as I look back and, you know, again, I, I take history as a kind of a, a series of movies that, you know, that I develop in my head. I wasn't there. I didn't see anything. Um, but when I look back at the past and when I look back at, again, you know, every, every major innovator, every great scientist, um, which is something that doesn't get explored very much, but every one of them believed in some pretty crazy shit. Or at least crazy shit, like according to what the normie, uh, atheist, or or even Catholic, or even you know regular churchgoer would think of as being um, um, uh, um, something outside the mundane. They believed in it, um, and given the fact that like the sides are arranging themselves in such a rapid, accelerating fashion. Given the the notion that maybe we are in an exponential growth curve uh, um, of something like good and evil, uh, I think that we should keep an open mind to the things that we see in the near future. Every event, we're going to want to. I think again, I'm gonna I'm going to speak in Miguel Christ language, even though I don't know it. I'm going to try to speak in it and say that. Even though our left brains want to chop that up into something that's 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 easily digestible, something that where we can where we can properly just apprehend motive and cause and effects and say like ah I see what the A to B to C of this is, um, we should probably look at each event a little bit more carefully than we do. Um, I obviously like in my from my perspective. Uh, you know, I mean, from my perspective, I already know um, in the only way that I know how to know uh, in my epistemology, I've already seen the other side, so to speak. I've already touched it um, and it's already touched me. And so it's it's weird like to, to try to build a bridge from from there to uh, even the person I was, I don't know, five, 10 years ago is very bizarre. Um, five, 10 years ago, I probably would have uh, been counted, if not uh, amongst um, mere atheists, maybe even an anti-theist of some sort. I, I you know, I, I certainly would have been talking about chaos theory. I certainly would have been talking about emergence, about Darwinism. I would have been talking about all of these things, and I would have been speaking with a confidence um, beyond my years, uh, a stupid, bold confidence that, like, somehow so many problems have been solved, and I'm one of the smart ones that gets it. 
uh, I no longer believe I'm one of the smart ones that gets it. Uh, I think that I'm on a path and I think it's the right path. If the path is the one that is the human path, um, then I think that uh, um, in some bizarre way, I was saved at the last minute from crossing over to the other side. Uh, and so I think when we when we talk about this war, this this war to end on all wars, or whether it's the war of all against all, or whether it's the dual singularity, um, we should pay attention. Uh, I'm not saying that like some kind of proto uh, uh, Bene Gesserit will um, emerge to defeat the robots with mental sorcery, but that may be the case. present company excluded, except for me. Thank you all for joining us. I think unless anybody has anything else to add, uh, we'll go ahead and close out this discussion on- The Tao that can be named is not the true Tao. And if you don't get that, you're on the wrong side. Amen. I like it. Amen. Until next time. <laughs>